Hey guys, it's Misha. We only have three days left in our trip. It's early morning. I'm in a log cabin in a forest, right outside of Acadia National Park. It's misty outside. There's fog covering everything. Thin, tall aspens that, in the wind, sound like running water. A trail leads from our cabin down to the water, which is not what I expected. When I think of Maine, I think of snow, lobster, Stephen King. But this, this feels like a dream. The sounds of this place, of these crows, it's a time machine. I'm transported back to Pakistan, to the first time I met one of these shiny black birds. I'm six years old. I'm in the back seat of my dad's car. I'm distracted by all the sights and sounds while we're driving through downtown Karachi. And then, something colorful catches my eye. I'm like, Baba, Baba, stop the car. Look over there. There's this man walking down the road. He's weaving in between cars with a basket full of little chicks. Little fluff balls dyed all sorts of colors. Pink, purple, green, orange. And they're crammed together, bubbling over like a pile of tie-dye cotton candy. I know, I know it's messed up, but come on. I was a little girl. I didn't know how cruel that was. I just thought, cute, colorful baby chickens? My dad starts giving me a lecture on how unethical this is. But I'm like, please, 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 please. And obviously, he is no match for his adorable daughter. So I cradle a little pink one and a yellow one with peach streaks all the way home. I am a mom now. I remember playing in my room with them. The chicks would follow me while I run in circles. The pink one would eat breadcrumbs from my fingers and how it would tickle so much when her beak would nibble my skin. I decide her name will be Chini and the other one will be Chum Chum and that I'm gonna take care of them forever and ever and ever. But one day, I make a huge mistake. I take Chum Chum outside on our deck to play. Above me, I hear a whooshing sound. A huge bird lands in front of me, jet black, with a pointy beak. He cocks his head side to side and then looks down at Chum Chum, who is frozen in terror. God, that crow must have looked like a T-Rex to her. Terrifying. Talk about a Stephen King movie. And I'm paralyzed too, because what happens next is horrifying. The crow grabs my beloved pet with its beak, shakes her, tosses her into its mouth, and then flies off. This is like the first time I saw the gruesome side of nature. And I definitely did not understand it. I think about that experience differently now. 
As a city kid, I wasn't prancing around in like open fields or climbing huge trees. Nature and I, we rarely interacted. Cute baskets of artificially dyed baby fluff balls. But crows, wild birds, they fly all over the world. They don't see cities or countrysides. To them, the borders of our urban spaces mean nothing. When you see a hawk perched on a telephone wire, or a hummingbird zipping through your garden, a nest snuggled up in a drain pipe, you realize that you can't control nature, create a border around it, keep it contained. There's something that Alan Watts said in his book, Nature, Man, and Woman, that really speaks to this. He goes, it becomes clearer and clearer that we do not live in a divided world. The harsh divisions of spirit and nature, mind and body, subject and object, controller and the controlled, are seen more and more to be awkward conventions of language. These are misleading and clumsy terms for describing a world in which all events seem to be mutually interdependent. With just a little beat of their wings, these birds remind us that our manicured neighborhoods are actually a little wild. Welcome to Hello Nature by REI Co-op Studios, brought to you by Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This episode is my last stop, and I'm on Wabanaki land in Acadia National Park. I wouldn't have if you hadn't said it. No, I'm kidding. Cassius Cash, the superintendent at the Smokies, was like, oh, you're going to Acadia next? You gotta do the beehive. So now, I'm hanging onto the side of a cliff with a thin little iron bar melded onto the rock. Oh, fuck. Yeah, this is not for the faint of heart. So the beehive actually looks like a giant rock-faced beehive. And to get to the top, you have to climb. I'm holding on for dear life. And the sign at the trailhead keeps echoing in my mind. Warning, this trail follows a nearly vertical route with exposed cliffs that require climbing on iron rungs. All right, there's some rock holds here. I think that's the move. Oh, fuck. Falls on this mountain have resulted in serious injury and death. Oh no, wind. No. Small children and people with a fear of heights should not use this trail. I wish I was a goat. (sighs) I try not to look down, but people keep panicking. So they stop. And when they stop, everyone in line to climb the beehive stops. It's nice. Yeah, you're getting to see some new things. And at this point, the trail is only like six inches wide. It's literally impossible to not look down. And my weak leg with a bad knee is not doing its job. You don't realize, like, the weakness until 
like kind of like a life or death situation. And you're like, oh no, I have to use other things. Okay. Oh my God, I feel safer. Is this it? This is the top? Okay, thank the fuck, God. Wow. Apparently, Misha the Salty Sailor comes out when she's freaked out too. I make it to the top. So of course, I have to take a bow. Thank you. Thank you. There really should be a plaza up here. Good job, guys. All right, let's do that again with the reaction I deserve. Thank you. Thank you. At the top of the beehive, I can hear the Atlantic Ocean. The air is so crisp. It dries the salty sweat on my face. I can see the tops of the aspens. The groves ripple like waves. There are salt marshes and beaches in the distance. And people on the beach look like ants. And dozens of forested islands rise up out of the Atlantic Ocean. The majority of Acadia National Park is located on Mount Desert Island, the largest island off the coast of Maine. And a lot of people come here to Acadia for the birds, the songbirds and woodpeckers, the warblers and thrushes, the sandpipers and the herons, the owls, the falcons, hawks, eastern phoebe, bignall's thrush, cooper's hawk, tufted titmouse, chimney swift. Okay, there are a lot. Like over 300 bird species. I'm kind of feeling a bit like a bird too, because the only thing about me right now is the sky. It's not the Montana sky, but it's clear and an azure color. You know, the kind of blue people reference when they say sky blue. In the last six weeks, we have been to eight national parks. We've traveled more than 7,000 miles. But that kind of distance is not a big deal for songbirds. I think the thing that sort of surprised me most about birds, especially the small little songbirds, is their bones are hollow. They're so light. They're only like a couple grams each. But then when you let it go, it's this animal that's going to travel thousands of miles in the next couple of months as part of their lives. They just travel these crazy distances, seeing all these beautiful different landscapes. This tiny little bird body, it wows me. It's so cool. (laughs) My name is Olivia Wong, and I'm currently a graduate student at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. I'm also a birder. I've never been birding. I'm not even sure what it means to bird. What even is a birder? I would say my definition of it is if you take some extra time out of your day to just notice the birds that are outside around you, that's my definition of birding. You know, if I see like something move through the sky really fast in the corner of my eye, I can't help but my eye is drawn towards it and I want to look at it real quick to see if I can tell what it is. Olivia focuses on owls, so she works a lot at night. And one night, She hears something strange, like... And it's just like this weird, like, 
ethereal moan that kind of also sounds like a baby crying. The first time I heard it, it freaked me out because I was like, is that a person moaning just out here? Like, are they okay? What is going on? What is this noise? It was not a person. It was a wedge-tailed shearwater um, or uaukani in Hawaiian. What we call birds matters. In fact, the names of birds is such a hot topic in the birding community that in 2020, a whole movement started. Hashtag bird names for birds. This movement was trying to acknowledge that naming birds after people, um, often people who had, in addition to their contributions to ornithology, so for example, Audubon was, you know, a great naturalist. He painted so many of the birds in North America and um, contributed a lot in that way. But he was also, you know, a slave owner. So if you're like me and know nothing about birding, Audubon is the name to know. And not Audubon like the road in Germany where you can drive super fast. Audubon like the Audubon Society. It's one of the largest, most active wildlife organizations in the country. But Audubon was an enslaver. Birds are often named for people. And a lot of those people were terrible humans. Like this guy, John Kirk Townsend, the Townsend behind Townsend's warbler. He used to dig up the graves of Native Americans to steal their skulls for quote-unquote science. And so the Bird Names for Birds movement was sort of pointing this out and saying, maybe it's time that as a birding community, as the ornithological community, we move away from naming birds after people and especially work on renaming some of the birds that were named for people who were racist, who were colonizers. Imagine being a black birder or a native birder or any BIPOC person. I mean, there aren't a lot of them in birding, but... It certainly does affect people when they have to say the names of these people who, you know, if you're black and you know that this person was a slave owner, it's like, man, like, do I, do I have to keep referencing this person every time I want to talk about this specific bird? Like, that sucks. The hashtag bird names for birds gets a lot of press. Remember when David Troyer said to me, people are in a monument toppling mood? This makes me think of that. Tons of organizations get on board because obviously it's the right thing to do. But also a lot of these names aren't even helpful. Like if I say we're trying to spot a Townsend's warbler, what comes to mind? But if I say we're looking for a ruby crowned kinglet, you know right away that that bird is a redhead. Bird names for birds seems simple to me. And so do I think like changing Aponos bird names will solve all of those diversity problems? Absolutely not. But it is a good like symbolic step that the birding community can take to say like we don't want to continue to reference and honor these people anymore. I mean birding is one of those rare activities that's literally free. But free doesn't mean accessible. And it definitely doesn't mean welcoming. Like you just take a walk in your park and you look at birds and you listen to birds and you learn about them and try and identify them. And it's something that's so simple and easy that anyone should be able to do and enjoy. But 
clearly it is not the same experience for people of color to just like walk around outside and try to enjoy nature um, the way that it is for, you know, white people. In a country where Christian Cooper gets the cops called on him for watching birds in a park, it means something to change bird names. It might be a tiny step, but it's a step in making birding more welcoming, or at least a little less hostile. We leave the beehive trail and drive over to a secluded cove called the Precipice. Let's just hold. Entering Southwest Harbor. And I notice myself noticing way more birds. Seagulls, a great blue heron. Oh, what is that bird? Oh, really? It's the most elegantly flying crow I've ever seen. Even though Acadia is the place to go for bird watching, it's not what it used to be. Recently, the bird population has taken a huge hit. It's fallen by like 40%. And guess whose fault that is? Us, humans. We brought in a bunch of pesticides, destroyed the homes of birds by cutting down trees, paving roads, building cities, and we're messing up birds' food source, insects and fish. There's this one kind of bird that we really mess things up for, the peregrine falcon. Peregrine falcons are native to the area, but by the 1970s, they'd completely died off. And not just in Acadia. It was happening all over. Why? You know the answer. Humans were stealing their eggs. Humans were trapping them. Humans were shooting them. And humans were using DDT, which was the final blow to the falcons. Right now, on our way to the precipice, I think about a poem I grew up with. It's by the Pakistani poet, Muhammad Iqbal. My favorite refrain goes, you are a falcon. Make your home on the mountaintops where you belong. It's strange to me to think about all the damage we've done to falcons because we have admired them for centuries. We've trained them to hunt for us. Like, falconry is in Gilgamesh. Falconry is the oldest land sport known to man. Before you had guns, before you had bow and arrows, there was a rabbit 300 yards away. How could you get him? If you had a bird of prey, you can actually catch that rabbit. And now you guys have dinner for the night. My name is Rodney Stotts. I'm a licensed falconer that's trying to open a sanctuary named after my mom called Dippy's Dream. Um, well, I grew up in um, Southeast D.C. in some of the roughest, poorest neighborhoods, I guess you would call it. You had violence, drugs, guns, prostitution, unemployment, welfare, you name it. When he's a kid, Rodney uses his love of animals as an escape. I used to hook school and go to the Whitley Park Zoo and spend a day there. It doesn't matter from an otter to a giraffe to an elephant, a rhino, a monkey, a spider, a snake, all of them. I love them all the same. Teenager Rodney starts dealing drugs. He does it for a few years, but then he wants to get his own space, an apartment. And for that, he needs to look good on paper. You can't put on your application drug dealer. He comes across this job at the Earth Conservation Corps. Part of his job is to clean up the river. He picks out plastic bottles and cans, that type of thing. 
you can see the water moving faster, cleaner. Uh, we started seeing great blue herrings come back in, beavers, uh, little fish and stuff that we hadn't seen when we first started. And noticing things changing, it starts to change Rodney. He gets super fascinated with birds. And he gets involved with this project to return bald eagles to the D.C. area. He becomes obsessed with birds of prey. He wants to rehabilitate injured hawks, eagles, and falcons. But it requires a special license. I was told the only way that we would be, I would be able to have birds of prey that are flighted and releasable was I had to become a falconer. So when I said, that's what I'm going to do, people looked at me like I was crazy. It was an oxymoron to hear black falconer. To become a falconer, you need to get a mentor, someone who can show you the ropes. I mean, these birds are some of the most intense hunters on earth. So he calls this guy, a white dude, and he's like, hey, will you be my sponsor? He just said, black people don't fly birds, y'all eat them. And Rodney's like, okay, uh, that's a no. So he looks for another sponsor. And he ends up working with this incredibly kind woman. And he gets his license. But the birding world is small. One day, he's at a falconry event, and he runs into that racist guy. He said, uh, I was the guy you talked to on the phone. You know I was just joking. I said, well, I wasn't. You see that bird right there? That's my bird. And just turned around and walked off. I didn't have any more conversion for him. Rodney is now a master falconer, like a black belt of falconry. I like something about all of them, like jerk falcons. When If you're out in the Arctic somewhere, you can't see them. All of a sudden, you'll just see a puff of feathers pop up from where this bird turned sideways and camouflaged and blended in so they can approach his prey without it ever seeing them, the stealthiness of them. You have your peregrines that can fly up into the sky, and what they'll do is they'll tuck their wings and stuff in and come burling down at the ground 220-plus miles an hour. Rodney's relationship with his birds is not owner and pet. It's a relationship of equals. The kind of relationship I want with nature. You always had to make sure that you made that raptor understand that we are a team and that you don't work for me. So if that bird ever decided, I can do better by myself and leave you, then you're without a bird. Now you have to start all over. Just remember, bird brain does not mean stupid. Bird brain just means the brain inside of a bird. Rodney isn't in a position to name species of birds, but he does name the falcons he works with. He names them after the people he has lost. Close friends from the Conservation Corps who were murdered, his older brother, his mother. His birds, they carry the names of his people. You die twice. Once when you physically die, and the next time you die is when the last person mentions your name when your name is no longer being mentioned, then you're truly gone. So as long as I mention their names, they're always still here with me. All of my animals basically are named after the people that I love that we've lost. So when someone dies, the first thing we always say is they're up there looking down on us. Well, where's the bird? Up there, doing what? Looking down on you. Rodney is now living in a rural part of West Virginia where he's building a new space. It's basically uh, going to be donation-based. Because you can't afford something, that doesn't mean you don't deserve it. 
I want you to be able to have a place where you can come ride horses and learn about the birds, the hawks, the owls, the falcons. In the wintertime, get to walk and do hunts. Uh, get to play with the goats and the chickens and everything. Learn about gardening. It's a sanctuary for birds, a place where he'll train and nurse injured falcons, eagles, hawks. But it's also a sanctuary for people, at-risk youth, people who are going through a rough time. We all have hurt somebody sometime in our life. How many people have you ever tried to heal? So that's my thing. I know the amount of pain I've caused in people's lives when I was ignorant. When I was one of those people that, trust me, you really wouldn't have wanted dating your daughter. Now, I'm the guy you want your daughter to marry. special okay point one mile we arrive at the precipice we're meeting a ranger here to show us some peregrine falcons irl it might be her yeah becky yeah hi misha and jonathan it's so nice to meet you're becky right okay great so nice to meet you becky colwell is not just any ranger she's the chief resource manager at acadia and the resources in that title It refers to the natural resources, the animals, insects, the oceans and plants, and the cultural resources, the people, the stories, the history. So basically, Becky is the chief of everything. Anyway, today, she's our falcon guide. A raptor, the size of a crow, and they're a very successful apex predator. Mm. And they're just built, they're just built to fly and built to hunt. And so they're really she tells cool. us about the scientists who wanted to bring the peregrines back in the 80s. Dr. Drury and one of his students said, hey, Acadia, <laughs> this is the perfect place to try these experiments with reintroduction. So just like the wolves in Yellowstone, scientists reintroduce falcons to Acadia. Like they literally place baby falcons on the sides of mountains. And it works. I can't, always, I can't always tell if it's a, it's a gull or... I, I just always look at a white bird and say, Is it? It's been a little bit, maybe 20 minutes, and we haven't seen a single falcon. Just boring old seagulls, which I could see in L.A. And I'm annoyed. I got spoiled in Yellowstone with Jeremy where wolves are popping onto the spotting scope left and right. And then Becky pulls out a binder. A binder to show us what we're looking for. This is what the chicks look like. They're kind of this ugly. Is, they're, <laughs> what? You know, they're this fluffy white thing. Notice how big their feet are. They have, I think that's the like, peregrine falcons at the precipice are apparently super shy today. We don't spot a single one. But my disappointment doesn't phase Becky because she has other items on her agenda. She wants us to meet someone named Suzanne Greenlaw at the Salt Marsh which grows a specific type of plant, sweetgrass.
Suzanne is waiting for us when we pull up. She's fully decked out in rain boots and a stylish purple jacket. Her thick salt and pepper hair is pulled back into a ponytail. Huh? I'm an Aries because I can be like sharp. She hands me this beige jacket with a black mesh net around the face to protect me from the mosquitoes and bugs in the marsh. It's warm and sunny, and I already have a jacket, but I put this one on too, for good measure. I mean, we can never be too safe when it comes to bugs. My name is Suzanne Greenlaw. I am Maliseet from the Holton Banna Maliseet Indians. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Maine in the School of Forest Resources. I work to uh, create, kind of creating natural resource management tools for Wabanaki cultural needs. Becky and Suzanne have been working together for years. One of the things that I've learned is that we might not be able to like, write a deed that gives this land back to the Wabanaki people, but we darn well better figure out how we write relationships that allow for access, use, restoration of relationship, and um, opportunities to help us figure out co-management strategies going forward particularly related to climate change. We're asking people whose, whose story and knowledge and commitment to the land goes back 13,000 years to help us figure out what are we gonna do in the next 100. And we can't make decisions around other people's cultural heritage unless we have those other people telling us what's important. The water in the marsh is still brownish and there's thick overgrown grass all around it. And the grass is not on like solid ground. It's not even dry. It's submerged in water. Well, we just stay along the water edge and the grass edge. Sometimes I tromp on it and step too deep into muddy wet goo. So Suzanne tells me to follow her exact footsteps so I don't get stuck or fall into something. She's leading us to a spot where Wabanaki harvesters go to harvest sweetgrass. Out of respect for the practice, she asks us not to say the name of the marsh. I don't even know. I feel like you end up living here in the summertime when you're doing the research, like just counting grass. Yeah. Yeah. But the wind is nice. It kind of hopefully will reduce the bugs. President Biden appointed this woman, Deb Holland, as the Secretary of the Interior earlier this year. She's the first Native American person to have that title. The position, the Interior Secretary, oversees the land and resources in the U.S., including the National Park Service. Last week, Deb Holland came to Acadia and met Suzanne. Yeah, she, she was just so personable. She's, it's like having your aunt at the table. She, she has this, like, this loving energy. I don't even know how to describe it, but it wasn't this very... <coughs> I just got a mosquito in my mouth. <coughs> When we get to the sweetgrass spot, the wind picks up. Just enough to keep the mosquitoes from diving into our mouths. I find this landscape really gorgeous in the way that there's so many variations of green. And then when the wind blows, that shade just shifts and moves. It's like it's, it's, a, it's a life of its own, kind of. And then as the summer goes on, it turns into a more of a yellowy kind of green. And it's just this beautiful mosaic of colors. It's really, really gorgeous. Um, so, right, so like these shades of green... What pops out for sweetgrass is that it's, um, it's more of an emerald green and it's quite shiny. It's like, it pops like that. I don't know what that pops for you, <laughs> but it's this stuff right here. Do you see how like it, when it bends over, it has almost that white sort of shine to it? 
Wabanaki people use sweetgrass for a lot of things. For medicine, for basket weaving. But by the 19th century, the Wabanaki had been pushed from their own land. And Mount Desert Island has become a vacation spot for wealthy white people. Lush sweetgrass marshes become private property. So natives can't just go and pick some for basket weaving or medicine. In 1916, some of these wealthy people decide to donate their property to the National Park Service. They feel like this area is so beautiful that all Americans should be able to access it. It's an incredibly generous act. But the creation of the National Park still limits access to sweetgrass because taking anything from a national park is illegal. The parks were founded on this version of conservation where taking something like sweetgrass from Acadia will disturb the ecosystem. On top of that, for generations, the Wabanaki people were considered wards of the state, which basically gave the government the right to manage their finances. Right, the state would say, I will only give you your money if you turn into farmers. I will only give you your money if you don't speak your language. I will only give you money if you don't practice your religion. Um, and it's your own money. Forced assimilation. You know, it was really horrific, the policies for assimilation. And that wasn't this long, that was not long ago. Like what, like four generations ago? Like 120 years ago? Like, that is not that long ago. We still struggle now with language in our communities because of those policies. Um, so when you could make baskets and come down here and sell it, that gave you some agency. That gave you abil- ability to resist those assimilation policies. Because access to sweetgrass was limited for so long, Suzanne has now made it her goal to create access. Many of us don't have coastal properties. We were placed on a reservation land base, and um, we didn't have access to buy coastal properties. Most of the coastal properties is owned by private landowners. And some of those people, this is their second homes sometimes in the coast of Maine. Right? So these places that people have gone to for generations to pick sweetgrass, now landowners are denying their access to them. Sweetgrass harvesters had multiple stories of having this contentious relationships with landowners. So one where this woman, you know, had been going this one spot to pick sweetgrass all of her life. Her grandmother showed her this spot. This is where she learned to pick sweetgrass. She was picking one time and a landowner came down and started yelling at her and was threatening her, telling her next time he sees her on his property, he's going to bring a gun. So you're working towards helping protect that access, right? And you worked with Acadia. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're doing that? Yeah. So, um, Becky, do you want to come and talk about this part? The federal rule change from a government position? (laughs) So, yes, in 2016, the the Code of Federal Regulations was changed from you cannot harvest anything under any circumstances to allowing, and I put quotes around allow because that's an offensive, you know, approach, but to, to afford a process whereby parks could consult with and set up a situation where tribes could start issuing permits to harvest uh, plants of cultural significance, medicines, plants like sweetgrass in national parks. And that me- meant that we needed to start by talking to tribes about what's important. So, <laughs> Becky holds a listening session to see which plant is most culturally significant. And the Wabanaki nominate sweetgrass. Becky knows these people have lived here for 12,000 years. Of course their practice is sustainable. But... 
as chief resource manager, she needs to do some paperwork, jump through a bunch of hoops. She needs to prove that harvesting sweetgrass is sustainable so that she can issue permits to the Wabanaki to picket in Acadia. So she works with this botanist, and he is very Western scientist about it. He picks random patches of land for indigenous people to harvest sweetgrass. But those patches aren't spots where a lot of sweetgrass grows. So then Becky decides to do a second study led by a native woman, Suzanne. By the time the two studies are complete, there is no comparison. Harvesting sweetgrass is sustainable. On average, the sweetgrass stems that was here, I think it was like 280 before anybody got here in that one meter square. And they went up about 100 stems. So that's about 30% more Do afterwards. Do grass likes to be picked? <laughs> well, it is really interesting. When we um, show the results to the sweetgrass harvesters in one of our meetings, um, we were showing the statistical results. But all of a sudden we heard this like uh, movement behind us. And the gatherers there were so excited. They were clapping and uh, fist pumping to a statistical result slide, <laughs> which is <laughs> very unusual. I've never had anybody uh, clap to stats. <laughs> Why was that? Why was yeah. that? Explain what like the results meant and why were people so happy? So Native people are the most researched people in the world, but their lives have not improved. That's um, in Decolonizing Methodology book, that's a quote. Our narrative is being taken away from us all the time by non-Native people. We are written about constantly. We have not been in charge of our own narrative for a long time. And that's why it's changing. This study shows and supports what Native people have known forever but have told they don't know, which is that Wabanaki ways of knowing increases the population of sweetgrass. We have to prove that in the study. That is saying that our belief system is not as true as science and that science is the, was the one truth that we have to prove to all the time. For example, with the Glenn study, it didn't show any response. It showed the grass did the same. Right, so that would actually be in opposition to what Native people said. But, re but that's because of the methods that were chosen, right? So to have a Native person helping to inform the methods, having Native people's voices being respected and heard, and having the results actually support what they're saying, is sort of a shift and a change that's happening that people feel, I think. Of we're, we're in charge of our own narrative now. Is that why you're getting a PhD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. Like, um, why? Yeah, uh, because all of all those reasons, we have the people I love are often You know what? Something I learned from Deb Holland is to yes, let, is let yourself cry, <laughs> to not be like not to hide the tears. Um, the people I love are often made to feel like they don't are not good enough through our education system, in particular through science. And you can see these people in position of powers that they think they're doing the right thing. Because it's not personal, but, but they're actually disrespecting Native people over and over again without even knowing it. And so, 
it was important for me to find other ways to to show the beauty of the knowledge and to give people a voice and to to create a platform for other Native people, for the people that I love. Yeah. And you feel like maybe getting like a Western stamp of approval can help do that? Yeah. I mean, Western science is still a gatekeeper for natural resource management. But you're creating something completely novel with your, your dissertation work, too. You're developing an indigenous research methodology that is, is going to be incredibly powerful. It's going to be spoken of and followed and celebrated by scientists <laughs> everywhere. Well, I hope this is a, a model, an exemplar of relationship building, engagement, and, and science when you are working with Native people. It's become widely accepted that indigenous knowledge is is crucial to understand to help us adapt to climate change. Right? If you look at all the publications, you can see that over and over again. Yet the gatherers themselves still don't feel valued in their own knowledge. Right? So it's uh, scientists that are incorporating indigenous knowledge without giving back to the community, without showing the value to their own people who hold the knowledge and who generate the knowledge. So I want that as an example as well that this knowledge actually resides in the harvesters. As scientists, we don't need to create better management tools. What we need to create is ways that Native people can harvest and manage it themselves or practice their stewardship values themselves. Remember when Rodney said that people die twice? Once when they physically pass away, and once when their name is said for the last time. There are names that have been said for decades. Names that have become synonymous with the parks, with nature, with America. Names like Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir. And then there are names that have been forgotten erased, obscured. Names of the Buffalo soldiers in Yosemite, of the Chinese immigrants who built Wawona, of the young indigenous artists making petroglyphs on the side of a mountain in arches, of the Blackfeet men and women who were forced to caricature themselves at Glacier, of the women and children murdered in Yellowstone. And there are names of people whom I've met throughout the last six weeks. Across America, the people who are brave enough to speak the truth. To believe in the world not as it is, but as it can be, as it ought to be. A more inclusive and honest America. Who are brave enough to build that future. People like Suzanne Greenlaw, Derek and Ed DeRozier, David Troyer, Jeremy Sundaraj, Carolyn Finney, my name is Antoine Fletcher, my name is David Troyer, my name is Yan Yan Chan, my name is Rodney Scott, my name is Suzanne Greenlaw. 
These are the names and stories that will be with me for as long as I'm lucky enough to live. And I want you to remember them too. Tell people about them, carry them with you. Because these are the people who have shown me that the national parks are not simply America's best idea, but they are quintessentially American. They're beautiful. They're places for freedom, peace, and awe. But like us, they emerged from darkness, pain, and trauma. When I started on this journey through nature, I thought I needed a bunch of things. That in order to experience it properly, I needed gear, hiking boots, a poop shovel, a compass. Who uses a compass? I thought I needed to know what I was doing. Like, on top of being a casual rock climber, I also needed to dabble in river rafting and fly fishing. Nature can be really intimidating. I mean, after a pandemic, just leaving our houses can be intimidating. I thought this trip was teaching me how to be in nature. And in some ways, it did. Like, I can pitch a tent in less than 10 minutes. But what I learned on this trip is that the national parks, our national parks, are just one example of nature. I've always been in nature, of nature. Because like Carolyn Finney told me, everyone's first experience in nature is being born The trip is over. It's time to migrate home. From my airplane window, I look down at America, my country, and I think about something that Olivia Wong, the bird biologist, said. To notice nature more, one thing that I like to do, and I still do this sometimes when I go to a new spot, first I I just sort of close my eyes and I listen and I try and notice all of the different sounds that I hear. I think that is really helpful for just, you know, getting to know the place a bit and clearing your mind. You know how birds are some of the few creatures that break the invisible barrier between urban life and wildlife? When I was in Acadia, I kept thinking about the birds back home in LA. The sound of seagulls near the beach, pigeons cooing on telephone wires, parrots squawking in palm trees. I get to experience that for free. No gear, no compass, just my ears. They're there every single day. I just have to choose to pay attention. So this is me. I'm home. I close my eyes. The sounds get louder, more clear. I listen. And I imagine that the birds are listening to me, too.
Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Our executive editor is Arwen Nix. Jonathan Shiflett is the senior producer. Elizabeth Nakano is the producer. Francesca Diaz is assistant producer. Ariana Garbley provided additional production help. This episode was written by Jonathan Shiflett and me. It was sound designed by Jonathan Shiflett. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, and apprentice Matthew Lai. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Chelsea Davis, Joe Crosby, and Paolo Matola. Kirsa Berg is the podcast production intern. <laughs>